This is Christ the King Sunday, and it should be a really fun and exciting day for Christians. This is the last Sunday of the church year. Christ the King Sunday is really a unique day in the church year. Every other day or season looks back to something God has already done in the past. So Christmas looks back to Christ's birth. Lent looks back to Christ's suffering. Easter looks back to Christ's resurrection. Pentecost looks back to Christ's outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But Christ the King looks ahead. It looks ahead to the future, to Christ's final coming. It's a celebration of something that hasn't happened yet. Now, of course, Christ is king right now. He's king of kings and lord of lords, reigning over all things. But Christ the king looks ahead to the consummation of his kingdom, the fulfillment of his kingdom, the final form of the kingdom when he returns. Christ the King Sunday is about how the story ends. And indeed, our story will have a happy ending. You know, there are a lot of disagreements among Bible-believing Christians about the future, and I'm not going to enter into all of those uh, various disagreements here today, but all Christians do seem to be agreed on four basic realities, four great realities, four great certainties concerning the future. Let me tell you what these are. First, that there will be a final bodily return of Jesus, a bodily coming of Jesus at the last day, a final coming of Christ. In Acts chapter 1, as Jesus ascends on a cloud into heaven, angels tell the disciples who are standing there witnessing this, the angels say, this same Jesus who was taken from you will come back in the same way as you have seen him go. That is to say, he will return to earth on a cloud, personally, physically, visibly. He will return. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 describes his return as a glorious event. The trump will sound. Uh, the, 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 the trump and voice of uh, the archangel will be heard as Jesus descends from heaven with his saints who have fallen asleep before the day of his coming. They will come with him following in his train as he descends from heaven. And those who are still alive will be caught up into the air to meet him as he continues his descent. So those saints as well can be part of his train, part of his triumphant return to earth. That's the final coming of Jesus. That's the first certainty. Second certainty is the bodily resurrection of all men. The righteous and the wicked will be bodily raised at the last day. Christ is already raised bodily. That's a past event. But his resurrection is the first fruits of a greater harvest still to come. This was promised in the Old Testament. But it's, of course, much more clear, much more explicit in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15 describes this future resurrection. It bases our resurrection in the future on Christ's resurrection in the past. It goes into great detail about this, as we just read part of that chapter this morning. And indeed, in that chapter, Paul stakes the whole Christian faith on the reality of resurrection, Christ's resurrection and ours. In John chapter 5, uh, we're told that the day is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and all who are in their graves will come forth. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. There is this coming resurrection of all men, a general resurrection of all people at the last day when Jesus returns. 
The third great certainty is the final judgment. There will be a final judgment. Indeed, it's described again and again in Scripture as a judgment according to works, where our works manifest our faith or the lack thereof. Paul actually calls this final judgment according to works part of his gospel in Romans chapter 2. It's good news for the Christian to know that this judgment is coming. In Matthew chapter 25, we have a description of this final judgment, how Jesus will be the judge separating the sheep from the goats. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. And when that final separation takes place, what will happen? The wicked will be sent away forever to the lake of fire, a place prepared for Satan and his demons, according to Revelation 19 and 20, a place of great suffering and, and torment. The wicked will be sent away forever to the lake of fire, and the righteous will enter into the promised new creation. They will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And that really brings us to the fourth great certainty, the renewal of the world. Yes, the renewal of this world. Heaven and earth will be made one, and God will dwell there with his people forever and ever and ever in glory and in joy. And that is really the fourth great certainty. It is this certainty, the certainty of the renewal of all things, the renewal of the world, that I especially want us to explore today. What will life be like in that new heavens and new earth? What will we do in our resurrection bodies? Will we all dressed up in resurrection bodies? Will we have any place to go? We're going to live there for all eternity. That's a really long time. How will we fill the endless eons after Christ's return? This has been called life after, life after death. Uh, I'm calling it today life after the last day. What does life look like? What will life look like in this final new creation? Obviously, we can't know for sure. It certainly goes beyond anything that we could even begin to imagine. But Scripture does give us some clues. Indeed, I would say some very tantalizing clues to guide our imagining and our speculating about this future God has in store for his people. And I'll tell you straight up, I don't think that we think about these kinds of things enough. I don't think we think about the future or, or meditate on the future God has promised to us enough. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said about this and why we need to think about the future, why we need to be a future-minded people. You could say a heavenly-minded people. Lewis said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. I take heaven here to be C.S. Lewis's way of talking about the world to come, this future world we're talking about this morning. It's so important to understand the physical dimension of our redemption. We are physical people with physical bodies living in a physical environment, a salvation that only delivers souls is incomplete. 
A salvation that does not include the physical is incomplete. You're more than a soul. You're also a body. Indeed, you are a body-soul composite, a body-soul unity. Your body is not just a shell for your soul, a shell that could be discarded, like a husk that can be thrown aside. No, it is part of your identity. It is essential to who you are. So when you die, we know from Scripture, your soul goes to be with the Lord in heaven, and your body is buried in the ground. As your soul is in heaven, what is it doing? It is awaiting the resurrection of the body. Indeed, theologians refer to that time in heaven when our souls go to be with the Lord right now. Theologians refer to that as the intermediate state. Have you ever heard that terminology before, the intermediate state? Because it's not the final state. There's still more to come. And this intermediate state is described in various places. We've got hints uh, about what it's like in the book of Revelation and in Philippians 1. Uh, it's, it's most fully explained to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In fact, it's interesting. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that those souls who've gone to be with the Lord in heaven long to be clothed with their resurrection bodies. Think about it. Those souls, those redeemed souls in heaven, they have been glorified. They don't sin or suffer anymore but they know their redemption is incomplete. They wait. They wait for the last day, for the resurrection of the body. You are not fully you without your body. You're not fully redeemed until your body is redeemed. You're not fully you without your body. And so God is going to save you that has to include your body. We don't want to say God only gives us a partial salvation. God only saves part of you. No. See, we will never be what God intended us to be until both body and soul are redeemed. So sure, heaven is a wonderful place, but it's not what we were made for, and it's not where we're going to be forever. Just like if you're traveling by airplane, and you're going from one place for another, and especially if you're flying out of Birmingham, you're almost certain to have a layover somewhere. That's just a given. Uh, that layover is not your final destination. It's a stop along the way. Our souls will have a layover in heaven, but our souls and our bodies are headed for a very different final destination. Indeed, what you might call a resurrected world, a new heaven and a new earth, where we will live in our new bodies forever. So when you die in Christ, you will go to heaven. But in heaven, you will long to be clothed with your resurrection body. The redeemed souls in heaven are eagerly anticipating and awaiting the last day when Jesus returns because then God's saving work will be completed. Then God's people will receive their resurrection bodies and will enter into this final new creation. See, the Christian hope is so different than what is commonly portrayed you know, kind of pop theology. It's so different from what you have in Plato or in the ancient Greeks or in the Gnostics. You know, for Plato, the prison, the body is the prison house of the soul. That's actually what he called it. He said the body's a prison for the soul. And so the best thing to have happen to you would be for your soul to be set free. The body is a hindrance. Maybe the body is even evil in itself. That's a kind of platonic way of looking at things, and that Platonism has infected the church from time to time. But the biblical view, the Christian view, is actually very different. 
The Christian view says God made the body. And like every other material thing God made, it's very good. And then God took a body to himself in the incarnation, and he will redeem our bodies at the last day. And so the Christian hope is not leaving the body behind, but getting it back in glorified form at the last day. That's our hope. Now, what will these resurrection bodies be like? Well, Paul gives us an explanation uh, at least to some degree, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We could also look at the resurrection accounts of Jesus to get some clues as well. But uh, the Apostle Paul draws a series of interesting contrasts in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44. The bodies we have now versus the bodies we will have in the future. He says, the bodies we have now are perishable, but we will be raised as imperishable. They are sown, the bodies we have now, they are sown in dishonor. I think that's referring to burial, the body being put in the ground. But he says they will be raised in honor. He says they are sown in weakness, but will be raised in power. He says they are natural bodies, but our resurrection bodies will be spiritual bodies. And spiritual there, of course, does not mean immaterial. That would be impossible. You can't have an immaterial body. Rather, it means our physical bodies in the, in the future, when we are raised, our physical bodies will be filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So completely we can say these are spiritual bodies. Jesus was raised with a spiritual body, a physical body, but he was raised up by the power of God's Spirit. And in the same way, we will be filled with God's Spirit, empowered by God's Spirit in our resurrection bodies. While it is certainly a mystery that transcends scientific explanation, there will be continuity between your body now and your future resurrection body. The body you're using now to care for children, to serve your neighbor, to speak the gospel, to speak God's truth to other people, to listen to God's word. The very body you have now that you're serving God in right this moment, that is the body that will be raised. The resurrection means the body you live in now will be transformed, it will be perfected, it will be glorified. Again, we can learn a lot from looking at the prototype of this, Jesus' resurrection body. Look at the gospel accounts. Jesus in his resurrection body, what does he do? What can we say? Well, certainly Jesus was still recognizable even in his glorified, transformed resurrection body. He's still a man, so we can say in the resurrection, if you're, you know, you're either male or female in this life, your resurrection body would be either a male or a female body, just as it is in this life, just as you are male or female now. Presumably, you'll have a nationality or an ethnicity. Jesus was raised Jewish. His re the, resurrection, the resurrected Jesus was Jewish. Uh, I suppose we could say that racists would be very unhappy uh, in the new creation because people of every tribe, people, nation, and tongue will be represented there, will be raised with some kind of nationality or ethnicity, uh, I would think. Jesus ate and drank in his resurrection body, and so we can assume that we will also. In fact, it's interesting, feasting is used as the most common image we have of the eternal kingdom. It's going to be like Babette's feast for all eternity. You've seen that movie, you know what I'm talking about. A glorious feast for all eternity. Well, you can't feast without a body. You have to have a body to eat and drink. It means resurrected taste buds, I assume. So I would imagine that we'll be able to 
taste things in an even greater uh, and more enjoyable way. The resurrection body will be glorious. Your resurrected body with its resurrected senses, its resurrected muscles, its resurrected brain will have far greater powers and abilities than your current body, which is weakened by sin and by disease, other effects of the fall. Your resurrection body's not going to let you down. <laughs> Our bodies in this world let us down, especially the older we get. The more they not only let us down, the more they break down. That's not going to be the case with your resurrection body. Your resurrection body will be perfect in beauty and in strength. Your resurrection body will work in perfect harmony with your resurrection mind. Again, it will be the perfect you, the perfect version of Yourself, the perfect version of who you are, who God intended for you to be all along. That's who you will become in the resurrection. And you know what? You're going to live in a perfect world. Just as our bodies will be transformed, so will this world be transformed. We talked about the resurrection of the body, where a resurrected body is going to live. We've got to have a fit habitation. You could say there will be a resurrected world. And again here, Scripture gives us tantalizing clues, very suggestive clues, little glimpses here and there of what this new heavens and earth will be like. In fact, that's one of the most interesting facets of this. Heaven and earth will be made one. We can scarcely imagine what that means, but heaven and earth will be made one. I will tell you, we need to learn to think of this world as our home. Yes, I know there are dangers in that, and, 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 and Christian preachers are constantly warning, warning about those dangers. Don't get too attached to the things of this world. There are dangers in getting too attached to this world. I agree with that. Or getting too attached to the things of this world. It is entirely possible to turn God's gifts into God's substitutes, to turn God's gifts into idols. We can do that. That is true. But the idea that we're just passing through just passing through this world onto some other destination. It's just not right. Man was made for the earth, and the earth was made for man. This is our forever home. That means we have to ask the question, what would a resurrected earth look like? And I believe we, we, we can say it will be this earth, recognizable even as our bodies will be recognizable in the resurrection, but it will be this earth glorified and transformed. You know, the whole idea that we're going to spend eternity perched on clouds, strumming harps, that's just not the biblical picture. Oh, sure, we might be able to ride on clouds. I imagine we'll, we will. And there will be harps there. If you haven't learned how to play the harp in this life and you want to learn, I'm sure that there will be plenty of opportunity for that. But there's so much more. God has so much more in store for us. It's hard for us to fathom this how this could happen. But the church has sometimes so misrepresented the eternal state that not only do non-Christians have no interest in it, but a lot of times Christians themselves seem very disinterested in it. We, we've so underplayed what God has in store for us. We've, we've so misrepresented what God has promised to us. The pictures that we have of eternity are often so dehumanizing, they're so reductive, in terms of, of, of what they make life look like, that there's nothing compelling or attractive in them. I always think of Mark Twain's book, The Adventures of, uh, of Huck Finn, and uh, Huck Finn probably represents Mark Twain's own view of this matter. But uh, as, as the, the, the Christian spinster 
Miss Watson, who is um, caring for uh, Huck uh, as she tries to convince him why he should be a good person so he can go to the good place. Uh, This is how he ends up describing it. She went on and, and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said not by a considerable sight. But I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. (laughs) The way she's described heaven, he'd rather just go to hell with Tom Sawyer. (laughs) There's nothing compelling or attractive about the vision of the future she paints. Why should he be interested in strumming a harp and singing all day long for all eternity? There's nothing compelling or attractive about that. But that picture that Miss Watson paints for Huck is so far from the truth. It, it so misrepresents the hope that we have. What will a renewed earth look like? Uh, a resurrected earth? It'll be a place full of gardens and forests and rivers and mountains. I mean, if Huck thought the Mississippi River was exciting in his day, it's going to be even more exciting and glorious and beautiful when it's renewed. And so it will be with every other facet of the creation. This creation is full of beauty. But that beauty we see in the creation now is only a a, a momentary glimpse of the glory and beauty and splendor and magnificence that will be revealed at the last day when God unveils the renewed heaven and earth. So the Grand Canyon is going to be glorified. I don't know how it can get more majestic than it already is, but it will. The Rocky Mountains will be glorified. These forests, lakes, and oceans all will be glorified. And we're going to have all eternity to explore this, to tour it, to drink it all in. See, the redemption of this physical creation is necessary because God is not going to surrender any territory to the enemy. He's not going to surrender one square inch of this creation to the enemy. The only thing Satan's going to get in this creation is the lake of fire. And that's because it's a place prepared for his punishment. The earth is not going to be left behind in God's redemptive work. God is not going to abandon his creation. He's going to restore it and reclaim it. He's not going to hand it over to his enemies. He's going to redeem it and make it be what he intended all along. Romans 8, we we read that that portion from the middle of Romans 8. Romans 8 really describes this for us. It describes Christ's return and our resurrection as creation's exodus. And Paul says it's like the creation itself is standing on tiptoe, waiting with great excitement and anticipation for our redemption as God's people to be complete. Because when our redemption is complete, then creation itself will be restored. And Paul says this will be like creation's exodus. It's freedom. Creation has been in bondage, in slavery. But it's going to be set free on that day. It was unwillingly subjected to futility, but it was subjected to futility in hope. The hope of what? The hope of release. The hope of release from decay and corruption from all the effects of man's sin, from the effects of the curse. And so God at the last day is going to restore this creation. He will reveal a renewed world full of his wisdom and beauty and glory. Paul says creation groans right now. 
Creation groans and longs, even as we groan and long for that day. See, our hope and creation's hope are tied together. But creation itself really has the same hope as God's people. This hope for the renewal of all things. When God made the world in Genesis 1, that was his plan A. And God does not have a plan B. When man sinned, God did not scrap this world and throw it into the cosmic dumpster and then start over and build a new world. No, when man fell into sin, God got to work redeeming this very world. This is God's plan A. And there is no plan B. In the beginning, God made heaven to be his home and he made earth to be man's home. And the plan from the very beginning was for God and man to share a home, for heaven and earth to merge and to become one so that God and his people could dwell together in total oneness. That's what the final new creation is all about, heaven and earth becoming one. That firmament veil, that barrier between heaven and earth that God constructed on day two of the creation week, that's going to go away and heaven and earth will merge into one. Think of that hymn, This Is My Father's World. It's got that line in it. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. That is the hope. That is the plan. Just as God and man, the divine nature and the human nature are conjoined in the person of Jesus, so heaven and earth will be conjoined forever at the last day. They'll be joined together. They'll be made one. They'll be married. They'll be united forever and ever. Ephesians 1.10 tells us this, how God is gathering up all things into one in Christ Jesus, both things in heaven and things on earth. That is God's ultimate goal, to bring heaven and earth together. God's ultimate goal is one cosmos under one Lord. One cosmos under Christ's reign forever. That's where history is headed. The kingdom of God, the scripture so often talks about, is really nothing other than this. It is the complete renewal and restoration of all things in Christ Jesus. You know, sadly, again, some Christians miss this. Some Christians think of the creation as the Titanic. And when man sinned, it's like the, the, the Titanic, the creation, hitting an iceberg, and now it's sinking, and God doesn't care about the ship anymore. All he wants to do is save as many as possible, get as many people as possible out of the ship and into the lifeboats before the ship goes down. And that's all there is. And so don't bother rearranging the deck chairs on a sinking ship. Don't worry about things in the here and now. Just get as many people saved, as many souls saved as possible. Because it's like the Titanic, it's going down. Now, I, I think a much better analogy would be to think of creation as the ark. And God's intention, God's plan, God's purpose is to preserve it, to even preserve it through judgment. And just as after the flood was over, there was a new restored earth for Noah and all these other creatures, so it will be at the end of history. That's what we're going to get in the final creation. That's our hope, that we will be united with God and we will have communion with him in the deepest possible way as we enjoy all of his gifts to us in this renewed world. See, this world as it exists now is really just a shadow of what is to come. 
the beauty that we see in this world around us right now is really just an appetizer. It's really interesting. C.S. Lewis uh, captures this so well in his Chronicles of Narnia series. In the last battle, you've got uh, some of the major characters in the story who, in the renewed world, so now everything has been renewed, they rediscover their homeland of England. This is how the conversation goes. Why, exclaimed Peter, it's England, and that's the house itself, Professor Kirk's old home in the, Kirk, in, in the country where all our adventures began. I thought that house had been destroyed, said Edmund. So it was, said the fawn. But you are now looking at the England within England, the real England, just as this is the real Narnia. And in that inner England, no good thing is destroyed. In fact, those things are not destroyed, they're restored. If this world is going to be renewed, what can we say about it? What will be included in that? I've already hinted at this. But, but what about the animals? Where, will there be animals in this renewed world? Well, again, it's important to understand that because man was made the captain of creation, as man goes, so the creation goes. That's, again, what Romans 8 shows us, that creation's fate is tied up in humanity's fate. So when man fell, the creation fell with him. And as man comes to experience the curse, so the creation comes to experience the futility and frustration of the curse as well. But that means, as Romans 8 goes on to show us, that when man is redeemed and resurrected, so the lower creation will be redeemed and resurrected with him. As man goes, so the creation goes. The first Adam brought futility and frustration into the world. The second Adam will bring fulfillment and freedom. So if creation's destiny is inseparable from ours, when we are resurrected, what will this mean for the animals? Well, again, ask that question. Have animals been impacted by the fall? You bet they have been. Again, Romans 8 describes that. How the creation itself groans out groans and longs for its redemption to be free from bondage to the curse. You know, we can see this in the lives of animals, that they experience pain and death, and that's ultimately because of man's sin. Well, if they experience the curse, the curse of sin, shouldn't they also experience some kind of salvation? See, this is the question that's really at stake in this. How comprehensive is the salvation Christ has accomplished? Does he really redeem the whole creation from sin and from its effects? Does he really reverse the curse completely? Did he really come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found? Well, if animals are not part of the new creation, then you can question whether or not this salvation is really comprehensive. If the second Adam really undoes the damage wrought by the first Adam, then animals must be included in that. So you can look into the eyes of your dog and you can see that there's a pain there. there, there there's suffering there. There's a longing there. And you can know there's a redemption that is coming. I think we have a, a type and a shadow of animal salvation in Noah's Ark. Again, I already made reference to this, but think it through. If Noah saved the animals and brought them into that new post-flood world, then surely the greater Noah, the Lord Jesus, will do the same. If Noah saved the animals, how can the greater Noah not? 
And indeed, we see places throughout Scripture where God has tremendous compassion for animals. In the book of Jonah, God shows mercy to the city of Nineveh when the people repent. But it says this is not only because of God's heart of compassion for the people, it's not only for the people's sake, but also because there are many animals, there are many cattle, and God's having mercy on them as well. Or think of it this way, if the new creation is the consummation of Eden, Eden brought to its consummation. There were animals in the original Eden. How can there not be animals in the final glorified, matured, perfected? See, God doesn't give up on this world, and that includes animals. You know, we like to have pets. You know, I'm sure a lot of us really love our pets. Well, all animals are God's pets, and God loves them. And according to Psalm 148, they praise him. Everything that has breath is to praise the Lord. And so, yes, I would say animals will be with us in that new creation. Now, there are other questions that come with this. One further question that comes with this is, if there are animals in the new creation, will they be the same animals that have lived in this creation? See, I've said our bodies, it'll be the body you have now, but transformed and perfected. It'll be you but it perfected you. What about the animals? Can we say the same thing? Will the same animals that have lived in history be with us in the new creation? Or will God make new animals? Will he resurrect, so to speak, the animals that exist now? Or will he make new ones for the new creation? See, the question is not just, will there be dogs in the new creation? But will my dog be there? That's the question. And I think that at least in some cases we have to say, Yes, in fact, I find it really interesting. In 1 Corinthians 15, 39, Paul talks about how God has made various kinds of flesh. And why would he talk about the various kinds of flesh God has made in discussing the resurrection unless God intends to resurrect various kinds of flesh at the last day? Further, in uh, Romans chapter 8, this is really Paul's logic. The very creatures that have groaned out must have that cry answered. Their groans must be answered. Indeed, in Scripture, animals are described as ensouled creatures. They don't have human souls. It's not that. But they do have souls in a very real sense. And if they have souls, why shouldn't they live again? Why shouldn't those souls be re-embodied at the last day? Animals are clearly not as valuable as humans, but they do have value. They do have value. And they will be beneficiaries of Christ's saving work. So that beloved dog that you had to bury, uh, that pet gerbil that you lost, that was something big in my family. I think we'll have those animals with us in God's glorified new creation. Animals surrounded Christ's manger at his birth. I believe they will be among those who are around Christ's throne in his new creation. There's one other question here that I can't help but ask uh, because I think it's also really interesting given little hints and clues that Scripture gives us. When we are reunited with our animals in the new creation, will those animals be able to talk to us? And we'll be able to talk to them with, uh, with understanding. Can we carry on a conversation with them in the new creation? C.S. Lewis certainly thought that. He thought at least some animals would be able to talk. If you look at the, uh, the, the parable, the allegory that he gives us in his Chronicles of Narnia. John Wesley seemed to think this as well. Listen to what Wesley has to say about this, about the renewal of animal life, animal creation in the new heavens and new earth. 
He says the whole brute creation will then undoubtedly be restored, not only to the vigor, strength, and swiftness which they had at their creation, but to a far higher degree of each than they ever enjoyed. They will be restored not only to that measure of understanding which they had in paradise, but to a degree of it as much higher than that. It says, with their beauty, their happiness will return in the new earth as well as in the new heavens. There will be nothing to give pain, but everything that the wisdom and goodness of God can create to give happiness. As a recompense for what they, the animals, once suffered, they shall enjoy happiness suited to their state, without alloy, without interruption, and without end. And he asks, what if it then what if it should then please the all-wise, the all-gracious creator to raise them higher in the scale of being? What if it should please him to make them capable of knowing and loving and enjoying the author of their, of their being? Okay, I think that's a great question to ask. You know, I find it really interesting. When the serpent starts talking to the woman in the garden, she is not surprised. Oh, wow, one of these animals can talk. No, it's as if that's a normal state of affairs. Perhaps the animals spoke before the fall. We've got the example of Balaam's donkey. So I just throw that out there. Tantalizing clues. Who knows? The point of all of this is to say that God, through Christ, is accomplishing cosmic redemption. That's really what Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15 and so many other passages are about. Christ is going to remake every square inch of this universe. Not just humans, but animals, mountains, rivers, plants, stars. A cosmic catastrophe calls for cosmic redemption. But I want to add one more thread to this as we wrap all of this up. A cosmic redemption in turn calls for a cultural redemption as well. So you can ask the question, and all this sounds great, but what are we actually going to do in the new creation? I mean, forever is a long time. What are we actually going to do there? And again, there are clues that can help us piece this together. We know man was made to worship God. And so certainly, in the renewed creation, we will gather around God's throne and we will worship him. But man was made not just for worship in that narrow sense. Man was also made to work. Man was made for culture. Man is a culture-building creature. God is a worker. We're made in God's image. We're workers too. Work is a blessing. Yes, now we have to deal with the effects of the curse in our work, but work itself is a blessing. There are few miseries greater than the misery of unemployment because man was made to work. All those things that we enjoy about life right now, all those things that seem to give life its purpose and its meaning, things like art and music and science and storytelling and sports and building things, these are all good things in themselves. And yes, I don't doubt they will look quite different in a perfected world compared to how they look in this fallen world. But we are going to enjoy those very things because they are part of our humanity. They are intrinsic to who we are. We don't do those things. We don't make music or engage in science or tell stories because we're sinners. We do those things because we are human. And when you take the sin away, those things will remain. Indeed, they'll remain in perfected form. Those are not unspiritual activities. 
In the same way, the things we do in this life, our faithful contributions to building God's kingdom, the ways we fulfill the dominion mandate in this life, all of that will be woven into the fabric of the new creation. God is going to take the works that you accomplish in this life, and in that new world, he's going to establish the works of your hands forever. So the things that you contribute to God's kingdom in this life will be woven into the eternal fabric of the kingdom. And you see this in passages like Isaiah 60, which describes the kings of the earth as the representatives of their people, bringing their treasures, the treasures of their nations, into God's kingdom. And so that means the best works of literature and technology and everything else will be preserved and glorified in God's new creation. Those things you don't get to do in this life because your life is cut short. Well, there'll be time for them in the life to come. But here's the thing. The things we contribute to the culture of God's kingdom now will in some way endure for eternity. But there's no reason to think that culture building will stop after the resurrection. We know there won't be marriage and childbearing as there is now. The only marriage will be Christ's marriage to the church. And we will all be children of our Heavenly Father. That will be the family that matters for all eternity. But think about life right now. What do we do right now in our lives? There's this rhythm to life with worship and work and play. A kind of rhythm to life where those are the things that make up your life. All of those things are blessings. And again, they are intrinsic to who we are. And so they will continue to be part of life in the world to come. Think about what this means. This means there's going to be friendship, obviously. The communion of the saints. In the new creation, we will not only be reunited with old family members and old friends, we're also going to have all eternity to make new friends. So imagine getting to discuss theology with the Apostle Paul. Imagine discussing Pilgrim's Progress with John Bunyan. Imagine listening to Bach play his own music. Imagine discussing science with Louis Pasteur. Imagine talking literature with Flannery O'Connor. That's all going to be there. That's all going to happen. There's going to be laughter and humor. Again, C.S. Lewis, he captures so many of these truths so well. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there is a new Narnia in the end. And again, that's a parable of all of this. And of course, in that new Narnia, there is a reunion of friends. And, and we're told, Lewis tells us in the story, there was greeting and kissing and handshaking and old jokes revived. And then he says, you have no idea how good an old joke sounds when you take it out again after five or six hundred years. <laughs> okay? I mean, the old jokes are just not going to get old when you get all eternity to, to laugh and enjoy them together. And this is so crucial, you know, to think that, that, that heaven's going to be a world of love and a place of joy and a place of laughter and a place of humor. You know, we think of ourselves as the fun-loving ones and God is the killjoy. It's actually the other way around. God is the one who invented laughter. He invented joy. He invented wit. God is the joyful one. We're the dull ones. God is the joyful one. We're the killjoys, really, right now. But in the world to come, we're going to share in this joy and this laughter and this humor and this wit forever and ever. God is the fun one. We will share in that in the world to come. Indeed, we're going to have all eternity to learn how to have a really good time. What about missed opportunities? Projects you didn't get to, skills you didn't get to learn, uh, things you wanted to do and see that you didn't get to in this world. Well, it's not your last opportunity. 
Listen to what Victor Hugo said. He said, I feel within me that future life. He said, I am like a force that has been raised. The new shoots are stronger and brighter. I shall most certainly rise toward the heavens the nearer my approach to the end. The plainer is the sound of immortal symphonies of worlds which invite me. For half a century, I have been translating my thoughts into prose and verse. History, drama, philosophy, romance, tradition, satire, ode, and song. All of these I have tried. But I feel... I have not given utterance to the 1,000th part of what lies within me. When I go to the grave, I can say, as others have said, my day's work is done, but I cannot say my life is done. My work will recommence the next morning. The tomb is not a blind alley. It is a thoroughfare. It closes upon the twilight, but opens upon the dawn. That is exactly Right, he says, I haven't done one, one thousandth of the work I know I've got in me to do. Well, those things you don't get to, that's what eternity is for. Think about this. What would you do with strength of mind and body you cannot now imagine? And with unlimited time to explore and learn and grow, where would you go? What would you do? What new skills would you master? What adventures would you undertake? You're never going to sin. You're never going to suffer. You're never going to be bored. What would you do? Don't think of the new creation as a place where you'll be all dressed up in a resurrection body with no place to go. No, you'll have glorious places to go. Of course, the most intoxicating and awe-inspiring thing about the new creation will be God himself. And the promise of Scripture is what is called the beatific vision, that we will see God himself. We will see him in a way we cannot see him now. We will bask in the light of his glory. And to see God will be the ultimate joy. To know him as deeply and as fully as a creature can. And of course, because God is infinite, we will always be learning new things about God that will leave us in awe. To see the full array of his attributes put on display like the many colors of the rainbow. That will be the true joy of the new creation. God has great wonders in store for us in this new creation, but the greatest gift of all to us is God himself. God's greatest gift to us is always God himself. Yes, we find joy in God's gifts, but we find joy in God's gifts because they lead us back to him. The greatest joy of all is found in the giver himself, the one from whom all blessings flow, the one who promises to make all things new. This is our hope. When Christ returns, he will be all in all. He will hand over his kingdom to the Father. The final victory over death will be complete. Creation, including humanity, including you, will be all God intended for it to be. You will be all God intended for you to be. See, what does Christ the King Sunday really mean for us? It means the best is yet to be. As we live between Christ's resurrection and his return in the future, his resurrection in the past, his return in the future, as we live in this in-between time, we can live with confidence, we can live with peace, we can live with joy, 
Because we know, however difficult these chapters in our story might be, we know how the story ends. We know our hope. We know the glory. We know the joy that awaits us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.